So our next session for the afternoon is to be prepared for prep. We have a case-based discussion. I believe several panelists agreed to sit up here and opine on this, whether we're expert or not. And our next speaker who will talk about prep is Connie Kellum, who's a professor of medicine and global health and a professor of epidemiology at University of Washington in Seattle, and clearly one of the world's leading experts on PrEP. Thank you. Well, in some ways, none of us are experts on PrEP because we're all learning as we go, but um, hopefully these cases will bring up some issues that uh, we're beginning to face. And here's my disclosure and learning objectives. And just to frame this first, I want to say, you know, we're, we're at a point where we're in many parts of the world, including the U.S., seeing some um, improvements in terms of reductions in new diagnoses of HIV, but we're uh, not doing as well as we should in minority populations, including uh, Hispanic and Asian and Black uh, African MSM. These data come from PEPFAR, we're uh, looking globally. We're at a point where in the middle column, um, when you look at epidemic control and really try to see whether or not we can um, turn the epidemic, if we don't do better soon in terms of young adolescents, um, particularly young women in uh, Africa, we're actually gonna see a rising number of new infections. So, we really have to take prevention seriously. And one of the approaches clearly is treatment as prevention. And I think um, we now have had several trials um, that have reported out results about treatment as prevention. And the last one that was uh, reported at CROI called POPART from South Africa and Zambia, which was a community cluster randomized trial, had predicted that if you could really do on scale at a community level, uh, and achieve 90-90-90 targets, as UNAIDS has um, recommended, that you might see a 60% reduction. However, they saw a 30% reduction. So clearly treatment and reducing viral load in people who are infected is key, but we also need to move on primary prevention. And if you look at the fast-track targets, I think what you see is that we need to do better in all areas. So taking a global perspective here, that would also include medical male circumcision, um, as well as diagnosis and treatment of HIV and um, PrEP. And the steepest slope there is really um, to increase PrEP uptake. So we'll focus on that. So first, just in terms of thinking about what you're doing, if you do prescribe PrEP, um, how do you prescribe it? Do you, um, use, do you give it the same day? Do you wait for lab results or something else? Just a simple intro question. Great, so I think this doesn't totally surprise me. I don't know if the panelists have um, comments, but that has been the norm. <laughs> Send off, you know, I think obviously we don't want to start prep on uh, in persons who have acute HIV. But I think um, just to show you data that were presented at CROI from the New York group, 
they did a, a study in about now over 1,400 persons where they did either immediate prep or delayed prep. And the reasons why they wouldn't uh, start prep immediately were if they had any history of kidney disease, hepatitis B, or any signs or symptoms of acute HIV. And overall, 97% of people qualified for immediate prep. And they found much higher rates of continuation um, among those who were in the immediate prep arm. So I think there's a movement now to just, you know, that it's going to be rare enough that you're going to have an exclusion for prep that you could um, just start people on the same day and uh, not risk loss to follow up. Comments from panelists? Did, did they do point of care HIV testing though? They do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so this is, you know, in, in this context. But I think that there are also data from Thailand and elsewhere um, where they're doing more. The Thai Red Cross has been doing immediate PrEP starts, and there have been very, very few people who've had acute HIV who started. So I think that even without doing a DNA test or an RNA test, you can do this in the majority of people. But if you have any concerns about recent exposure, signs, or symptoms, you would wait. Well, I was just going to give a plug to our, we're doing an immediate prep study at UCSD, and so two of our immediate prep people are in the back there, so just giving a plug for that. So something we're uh, obviously investigating in an intensive way in our program. Right. Right. You know, I, was, I was just going to say that, I mean, the, I think the safety data will be, you know, supportive of immediate prep, but I think what would be most compelling is the persistence data, and that mm -hmm. we've seen that with immediate starts, you know, for people who are HIV infected, they tend to persist, you know, longer and they better adherence on therapy. Mm -hmm. Good point. And persistence on PrEP is one of the biggest questions right now. How do we do better at um, really engaging people and helping them persist if they think they would benefit? So it's a key, key question. Just want to say the other aspect of PrEP, be it delayed or immediate start, is just how much to give. And I think that um, the balance has been that we should probably give enough so that people don't have to come back frequently. I think one of the challenges when you look at discontinuation of PrEP is that people get, they're a well population and they're um, being asked to come in and do HIV testing, STD testing, and so I think that most people would settle on giving three months but be a little bit flexible, maybe out to four months, and try to find ways to um, to basically keep people engaged. And some of the things that are being tried in different contexts are uh, sort of differentiated prep delivery in the way that we've also done this with ART, with drop-in visits so that people don't have to see a provider. They're doing that a lot in London where they have large numbers of MSM on prep. Reminders, text reminders, peer navigators, and in some cases pharmacy delivery so you don't actually have to see a provider. Because it's really, prep is pretty easy to provide. So another question is, we have a 34-year-old uh, gay man who has sex with new partners about twice a month and he doesn't want to take a daily pill because his sexual exposure is relatively infrequent but he doesn't always use condoms so what would you do? Would you encourage him to use condoms? Tell him not to worry because his exposure is relatively low, don't worry about PrEP, encourage him to take daily PrEP, have him start PrEP seven days before sexual episodes or prescribe on demand or what's also called 2 one one PrEP. 
that's interesting. Any reactions from the panel? We'll talk in a moment about 211 prep, but. Um. I mean, I, I probably would say <clears throat> encourage him to take daily prep, but if he says that's not realistic, jump right on the last one like everybody else. So what is 211, just to um, fill in a couple of gaps. Ypres-Gay is the study that was done in France as well as in uh, Montreal. And this was basically event-driven prep, and they did it in a placebo-controlled study initially um, because the evidence wasn't there, where they instructed men to take two tablets, a minimum of two hours, up to 24 hours before sex, a tablet 24 hours and 48 hours later. And if you had ongoing exposure, it basically became 21111. And um, this was tested in a robust way, and the study was stopped early um, in the, um, as shown in the top two rows of this study, because they had almost an 86% reduction. Then they continued it in an open-label study, and they even, now that men knew that it worked, um, their adherence was even bit higher and the reduction was greater. So they had a median follow-up of about 18 months and they found overall a 97% relative reduction in um, HIV in the, uh, the event-driven arm. The median number of pills was 18, so this was less drug exposure and um, they did a subgroup analysis that showed even in those who had less frequent sex, less uh, frequent dosing of event-driven PrEP, that it was uh, about 85% uh, efficacious. So the data are pretty robust, and I think I didn't keep, include the slide, but if you look at data coming out of Europe, anywhere from about a quarter to a half of um, people starting PrEP are using event-driven PrEP. So I think it's coming our way. It's good to be prepared to talk with patients about this. And it's not too surprising, I suppose, because in the retrospective analysis of the IPREX open label extension study, they found in men who took at least four doses a week, they found a 96% reduction. So that's pretty much on par with an average of 18 pills per month. So at least for MSM, the data are pretty strong, and I think right now uh, CDC is con considering this as part of their um, PrEP recommendations. Some providers are reluctant to use it because it hasn't been approved by normative bodies in the U.S., but I can tell you that it's WHO is going to endorse it, and it's becoming um, pretty widely used in Europe. And the IS, IS USA guidelines recommend 211 as an alternative. I think you have to be selective. First of all, you have to realize that it has not been studied in women, and we'll have a case about a woman uh, for PrEP and what we know about efficacy and adherence in a moment, but the only data are from MSM, and I personally, having done some of the studies in women and knowing the data, would be hesitant to use 2-in-1 in women. Should not probably use it in chronic hepatitis B patients because of the potential for triggering a flare. And this is a select group. You have to have people who are pretty good at organizational skills, including planning when they're going to have sex, and be aware that they're, um, it is probably less forgiving in terms of um, if they miss doses. So next question. This is a 48-year-old um, man who has hypertension. He comes in requesting PrEP. He has multiple partners, frequent sex, and frequent STIs. 
His creatinine is 1.7, creatinine clearance is 61. What would you do? Prescribe him daily TDF FTC, daily TAF FTC, prescribe every other uh, day TDF FTC, prescribe 211, or tell him he should use condoms and prep won't work well because of multiple STIs. split between prescribing daily TDF-FTC and daily TAF-FTC. Any comments from the panels? How would you handle this? Well, I, I, have, I have an N01 of uh, somebody with a low colliding clearance. I think it's in the low 50s, and uh, he's been on every other day. So um, if you look up, you know, some guidelines for at least tenofovir uh, usage or 3TC usage based on creatinine clearance, there are some recommendations about every other day dosing. So, um, you know, there's obviously no data on efficacy uh, from every other day, but if you extrapolate, which we do often in infectious disease medicine based on chronic clearance and pharmacokinetics, um, I chose every other day. Well, I would say everyone's waiting to see what you're going to say next about the comparison <laughs> of TAF and tenofovir in the setting of PrEP. I suspect that the 38% uh, who were hesitant to go to TAF were not sure about the results of that randomized clinical trial because previous recommendations have suggested that it's not, because it's not yet approved for PrEP, we should wait for the results of the trial. So, um, and I won't take away your thunder. So, <laughs> but I would say that anybody who's had frequent STIs clearly need some counseling work done about condoms and avoidance of other sexually transmitted infections. But not that PrEP won't work. But not yeah. that PrEP won't work. Right. It will certainly work for HIV, it just doesn't work for anything else. So first of all, let's talk about what we know about renal function in PrEP users with TDF and FTC. And the first uh, data that came out were from Kaiser San Francisco that showed that dropping below an estimated um, GFR of 70 was more likely if you had a lower GFR to start and if you were older, as this man was 48. In our study, the Partners Prep and Partners Demo uh, study, again, um, baseline creatinine clearance and weight were predictors. However, we found that really there's a lot of, uh, many, the majority actually of cases, um, it did not repeat. And so we did not, I think we started to suspect that maybe we were being too conservative um, in some of our renal monitoring. And also that what, if there was a reduction, it was minimal um, in the vast majority of cases and it was reversible. That was uh, in the Thai injection drug user study. They found no effective recent IDU on creatinine, and again, they saw an association with age. And I think that if you look across the placebo-controlled trials you, and the early demo projects, it really suggests that it's a transient and relatively small impact. However, we now do have the data from Discover, which was uh, presented as a late breaker at CROI uh, a couple of months ago. This was a large study of um, about 
a little over uh, 5,200, almost 5,300 um, MSM recruited from 94 sites in 11 countries in the U.S., Europe, and Canada. And they recruited a high-risk population of gay men. It was not a placebo-controlled trial. It was a non-inferiority trial where they had to pre-specify their um, how much of a margin they would accept to be non-inferior. They expected um, many more infections than they saw. They expected an incidence of 1.44. And what they found, um, and this was the, um, the study is still doing follow-up, they found in the first almost 9,000 person years of follow-up, 22 infections. Five of those were present at baseline, so it left uh, 17 incident infections. And in their non-inferiority comparison, it indicated even after you took out the five um, infections that were determined to be present at baseline, that FTAF was non-inferior to uh, TDF-FTC. So it's non-inferior but not superior. There was, uh, this was only studied in MSM. And these were um, men with a median age of 34. There were only 74 transgender women in this study. Uh, we have absolutely no data on in cisgender women. It was very well tolerated. There was less signal in terms of bone uh, turnover markers and renal ins uh, insufficiency. There were a number of people who challenged the counterfactual incidents uh, where they not accounting for race, estimated a 4.4% infection rate in this population. I think one other thing that was really notable and is relevant to Dr. Klausner's talk is just a very high incidence of STIs. Um, basically 50% of participants had a bacterial STI during follow-up, and this is un has been submitted to FDA for review. So, um, I think, um, what would you do in this population? I think you could either um, re-challenge them um, with, you could consider trying TDF-FTC, and if his creatinine increased, um, pause, re-challenge them, or um, prescribe FTAF. And uh, you know, I think that once it's approved, it'll be easier to get insurance to, to pay for it. So Next case, we have a 29-year-old um, male patient who was diagnosed with secondary syphilis with a macular rash, myalgias, and an RPR of 1 to 64. He's interested in starting PrEP, uh, but he's a little concerned about whether, given that he's getting the diagnosis of secondary syphilis, uh, whether it will work. So what would you do? Wait for his syphilis titers to drop fourfold after treatment? Tell him that PrEP is not as effective if someone has syphilis? Tell them that PrEP works in the presence of STIs. Give them same-day um, PrEP, call them back with labs, send off an HIV RNA, wait to, for those results, or do something else. advertisement for Hamilton, but I would recommend it if you haven't seen it, it's great. Great. So the majority recommended that um, PrEP works in the presence of STIs, and you should tell them that, prescribe PrEP the same day, and call them back with labs, and a third said they would wait for HIV RNA. Any comments from the class? 
So I, I wasn't sure if you were uh, going to highlight the, you know, high incidence of acute HIV in those with syphilis. And, you know, those with syphilis, um, prospective studies have shown about a 10% uh, risk of HIV over the next uh, 12 months. But presumably you said he had secondary syphilis, so that's occurring six to eight weeks after his um, exposure and his infection. So a routine fourth-generation antibody antigen test would be sufficient to rule out um, HIV. So that maybe that's why some people thought wait for the HIV RNA, unless he's at risk for um, acute HIV. But if he had a routine uh, fourth generation HIV antibody test, that should be sufficient, and then you can start him on PrEP um, same day. Yeah, exactly. If this was a patient with primary syphilis, I would hesitate. Um, but I think secondary syphilis, you're talking typically two to three months after exposure. However, he could have had ongoing exposure. Um, I think that. Personally, I would feel comfortable with starting him on PrEP and then call him back if, um, if there is any, um, anything to suggest that he has acute HIV. So one question that has come up a lot is, do STIs reduce the efficacy of PrEP? And I think the placebo-controlled trials, both in MSM and heterosexual HIV serodifferent couples in Africa, suggest that there was no uh, lower efficacy in those with um, curable STIs, and that's also been shown in open-label studies like both the PROUD study in the UK where they had very high rates of um, baseline and incident STIs, and in the US MSM PrEP demo study. So the data, that would not be a reason to not um, encourage him to use PrEP. I think the real question is acute HIV. And then there's Another debate on the other side of the coin is PrEP actually fueling the STI epidemic. And I think the data will continue, continue to evolve. Clearly, the inflection points and the rates of bacterial STIs and MSM were increasing over time and actually antedated PrEP. However, we are seeing, and this is partly we're targeting PrEP to those who are at higher risk of STIs. It's one of the inclusion criteria we use in Seattle King County. So it's not surprising that you're also going to see high rates of STIs. And I think that um, that combined with the messaging around U equals U, which we'll touch on, you know, I think that clearly um, serosorting is changing and there is, there's a different attitude about condom use in uh, MSM. So, at a minimum, we should be doing more um, frequent screening, and you've, uh, Dr. Klausner talked about that with looking for GC and chlamydia at three sites and syphilis testing. Jeff talked about this in terms of doxycycline PEP, and I think my point here is just that overall, the 50, there was a 50% reduction in syphilis, CT, and gonorrhea. It was a relatively small study with about eight months of follow-up. And um, it was in men who were using event-driven PrEP. So we really don't know how well people would be able to adhere to post-exposure prophylaxis with doxycycline with daily PrEP. And it has, um, that study really only enrolled HIV-infected MSM. There were no transgender women. And uh, although we're not expecting a big effect um, in for GC, I think we want more data on both HIV uninfected MSM as well as HIV infected MSM. So there will be data coming as well as more data focusing on resistance. So personally, I would not recommend that to him, but just continue the every three month testing. Next case is a 24 
or sorry, a 29-year-old uh, gay man who's in a zero-different relationship with an HIV-positive partner. He comes in requesting PrEP. Um, he said his, he's been with his partner for several years. His partner is fully virally suppressed, has been for over a year, but he would feel more comfortable being on PrEP. What would you do? Prescribe PrEP? Prescribe it for now with the um, hope of dropping the PrEP if he um, remains suppressed? Tell the patient he doesn't need PrEP because U equals U, or ask what is U equals U. Well, this has come up in a couple of other uh, settings where people have described similar cases. And my first question is always, why does he feel like he needs PrEP? And so you wonder, yes, his partner's been virally suppressed, and U equals U means undetectable, untransmissible. And in that setting, you could argue that he doesn't necessarily need PrEP, but he's asking for it, and maybe he's asking for it because he's not in a monogamous <laughs> sexual relationship with a fully suppressed partner. So I have tended to recommend, if someone were to ask me, to go ahead and prescribe PrEP on that occasion and then try to explore some of these issues further. Very, very sound response. Any other comments? Yeah, no, I completely agree. You just want to make sure he understands that he's not at risk for acquiring it from his partner. Right. And if he still thinks he'd be more comfortable on it, then we have to think there may be reasons for it. And he's not ready to disclose. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff, any comments? I concur. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So first of all, what is U equals U? We should all be aware of the this topic and be able to talk to our patients about it, which is basically uh, something that started about two years ago, and, or longer actually, where there were data from other sources that being undetectable would make one untransmissible. And uh, there's a real call that providers should be counseling about that. And the Data are primarily from uh, studies, cohort studies, and uh, trials that used a lower threshold of uh, viral load of less than 200. Um, the data started to accrue. The Swiss were actually the ones that started this almost a decade ago, based on, at that point, pretty limited data. And they got some flack for um, promoting it. And as more data accrued, it really did seem like the point estimate for risk of transmission if you were virally suppressed was very close to zero, but providers wanted to have you know what the upper bound was. And as these data started to emerge, um, CDC uh, endorsed this. It was a, from what I understand, there was a fair amount of back and forth over this whole debate, but they endorsed the, the policy statement that we should be um, talking to our patients about being untransmissible if you are uh, have a sustained undetectable viral load. And what came out last week in Lancet is the Partner 2 study. There was a Partner 1 study that looked at heterosexual couples. This was a 
partner two study had a um, little close to 800 uh, MSM couples who were followed for almost um, two years on average with 76,000 reports of condomless sex. And what they found is the upper limit of risk from condomless anal sex with a partner who's virally suppressed is 0.23. So that is really virtually zero. The, the sample size was smaller for those who had a, um, where the receptive partner had an STI, but still there were no linked transmissions. And they did genetic um, testing to link these transmissions in all 15 men who became infected became infected from an outside partner. So I think Connie, you hit it on the mark. If there's, if you're not sure, and if the, you get a sense that someone is asking you about PrEP because they're not able to talk to you about outside partners, you should use it and then continue to have that discussion. But if they're truly monogamous with a partner who's HIV positive, you could, um, assure, you could counsel them that they don't need PrEP. Another question is a 21-year-old woman um, asks you to prescribe PrEP. She says that she always uses condoms with her multiple partners, but she would like to stop using them. What would you recommend? So you don't offer PrEP because condoms have worked for up to this point. You don't want to um, uh, risk STIs. You don't offer PrEP because it doesn't work well in women. You offer PrEP, but tell her it works less well if she has bacterial vaginosis or STIs. Or lastly, you offer PrEP and counsel that only condoms will prevent STIs, but let her make the condom decision. It seems like the reasonable thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> Telling her that she can't have prep because condoms work so well just doesn't yeah. seem like a great option. Yeah, and they, they certainly don't work as well as prep. Yeah. So these are the data on prep in women. And I think part of why I pose this question is because for a while there was some a lot of debate because there were two studies called FemPrep and Voice that looked at um, oral FTC, TDF in young African women, and they found no effect. And um, it was the point estimate was really one. However, on the other end of the spectrum, in the partners prep study in HIV zero different couples, we found 72% um, efficacy. And um, so this meta-analysis was published a couple of years ago, and I think what the the conclusion, and I would agree with it, is that if adherence is at least 75%, you have over 60% efficacy. So if women take it regularly, it should work almost as well as um, men. There is some suggestion from PK studies that tenofovir concentrates um, at higher levels in rectal than vaginal tissue. So if her own exposure is vaginal sex, um, she probably needs to take it a little more regularly. And so I think the fair conclusion is that PrEP does work for women, they may, it may be a little less forgiving of non-adherence, um, but not a reason to withhold it. The question also asked about bacterial vaginosis or vaginal dysbiosis, and this paper got a fair amount of press a couple, 
years ago um, where they looked at topical tenofovir prep, which was used um, in a pericoidal dosing study in South Africa called Capriso 4 And what they found is if you had vaginal dysbiosis, it seemed to metabolize the topical tenofovir faster. And so maybe that was a factor in why um, some women didn't respond as well. We looked in our partner's PrEP study and found that oral PrEP was not affected by vaginal dysbiosis. And um, regardless of how we defined and looked at um, BV, either based on the Nugent core score or presence of lactobacillus. So it does not appear to be a factor for oral PrEP. Next question. You have a 31-year-old patient um, who's on PrEP, he comes in for his routine quarterly lab test, his fourth generation antibody test comes back positive, but the confirmatory test and viral, lab, viral load come back negative. What would you do? Repeat the test, but continue PrEP. As you assume the fourth generation test is a false positive, repeat the test and stop PrEP, but start ART for acute HIV. Repeat the test and stop PrEP until you can determine what the infection status is and something else, which love to hear what the something else is. So fairly evenly split between repeating the test and continuing continuing prep or repeating this test and stopping prep. What about our panelists? What would you do? <laughs> I think uh, I would do the first part of that, repeat the test. <laughs> what you do thereafter um, is not clear. I'll give you some thoughts what I would think about in this situation. If this is truly an emerging acute infection, you don't want to continue just PrEP with the concern that you might be engendering the risk for resistance to ant the antiretroviral drugs. If it's um, in, if it also, if it's acute infection emerging, if you stop PrEP, that person is also at high risk for transmission. So repeating the test, I think, is an obvious thing. What's the right answer in the context of those other things? I presume you will tell us, but uh, I, in either situation, you need to determine what the infection status is, and you need to consider how convinced you are with this is, whether or not this is a false positive test or whether this is in the setting of acute infection. So that will really determine which direction you go. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I anxiously await the right answer. Uh, you know, the, intuitively, the first one seems like the right answer. Since the RNA test is pretty sensitive, even in the setting of therapy, you'd think it'd be pretty sensitive. And if you're assuming that the positivity is based on P24, you know it's more sensitive than that in the whole antibody. So, I mean, there are lots of things about this that make me think this is going to be a false positive. But I know there are quirky anecdotes of people becoming infected on PrEP that really challenge this discussion. And you have to balance that against the risk of stopping in somebody mm -hmm. who has ongoing risk factors. So, so I would be leaning towards the first one. Yeah, I'd probably be leaning toward the third one. Um, I mean, I just think you can have a frank discussion with a patient, say, listen, these are your test results. We need to figure this out. 
you need to stop having sex for a period of time um, until we can sort this out. It's not going to take that long to sort out. And, um, you know, if, if, if for whatever reason you really feel like that the individual is unlikely to be able to stop exposure uh, for, for you, know, you know, whatever reasons, then you may need to continue it. But I think it's going to be difficult to tease apart what the true infection status is if you continue the PrEP. I guess the one other thing that you can ask and sometimes access is the single signal to cutoff ratio. Yeah. If yeah, you can yeah. access that, and a lot of commercial labs won't give it to you, mm -hmm. but if you can and the signal to cutoff ratio is less than 10, that would further mm -hmm. support the fact that it's likely a false a positive. positive. Which it was. <laughs> and I think I bring this up because I don't think there is a single right answer here. You really do have to take into consideration whether or not the person is at high risk whether or not um, what the, if you can't get the signal to cutoff ratio, and in this case it was low and it was the antigen, not the antibody that was positive in the fourth generation test. And just to, I bring it up because we're, as we see more PrEP use, we're beginning to get some ambiguous results and you really have those three choices and you have to tailor it a little bit to the circumstances. And this person, because he had been using PrEP by his report, very, um, with very, very high adherence, uh, we continued the prep and the, uh, repeated the tests, and he had persistent um, P24 antigen, but the Western blot was uh, also negative, and we did a repeat uh, RNA. But because these are becoming more problematic, I think you have to sort of handle each one a little bit uh, according to your risk of whether or not they're if they had anything to suggest acute HIV, certainly I think that you would start ART. If you're really, um, if the person's willing to stop and get the wait for the results, you could stop, as Jeff said. But if they have been highly adherent, and if you really think it is more likely to be a um, false positive, I think you're justified in continuing it. In most of the PrEP studies that were done, there was a higher likelihood of these either rapid tests or fourth generation tests being false positives than two true positives. But I think for the future, as we get into cavitegravir and others, we have to be aware that um, we need um, better tools for being able to tease out true infection than some of our current ones. So I think Mike Bush and others are starting to work on that. And there is a PrEP line where you can call and get advice if you um, have such a situation. They're not common, but they can be really thorny. And we had a patient, a young woman in South Africa, where it took us almost three to four months of repeat testing to try to sort this out. Thankfully, she didn't get infected, but in the context of the protocol, we had to be very conservative. In terms of DNA tests, I mean, there will be commercially available DNA-RNA combination tests, uh, hopefully third quarter or fourth quarter of this calendar year. Um, and there are, you know, the big labs have DNA tests that they've, you know, internally validated that are not necessarily FDA approved. So um, that does give you some other testing mm -hmm. options. Yeah. Next one. 28-year-old HIV-negative woman who's in a zero-different relationship with a positive man. He's newly diagnosed and not yet stably virally suppressed. They want to have a baby. What would you recommend? Would you... <clears throat> Excuse me, wait for the male partner to become fully virally suppressed for at least six months before attempting pregnancy. Use PrEP because it's safe for periconception use and in pregnancy. Don't use PrEP because safety isn't known. Use sperm washing instead or something else. 
I really don't know the answer to this. I would, and I'm just going to take an educated guess and agree with the rest of the audience that um, it seems unlikely that PrEP would PrEP would significantly interfere with hormone levels and encourage continued use. But I'm not uh, well versed in the study results related to that question. Yeah, no, I know people have, have started to look at it, and I thought there was some suggestion there may be some small effect, but I don't know if it's clinically relevant. And certainly there is a growing database, although it's still small, of using PrEP and trans transgender women. 
No, so I think the 211 is interesting just because, um, you know, you already told us that 211 is uh, uh, safe and effective in, in mouths and has increased rectal concentrations. Um, so that may be an option if there's a lot of uncertainty about its impact on hormone use. Great. <laughs> this is one for which there is not a clear answer. So first of all, the data are not as extensive as we would like. And IPREX, the study of MSM and transgender women in the Americas, <clears throat> that formed part of the application to FDA, they only had about 340 participants who were identified as trans women. And they had no infections in the uh, transgender women who had detectable tenofovir, but um, only a small subset. So we're really talking about 20% of 340 almost. So the data, you know, I think this is why this question has come up. There have been a couple of um, PK studies, and um, the studies are mixed. So there's one that was reported last year that suggested a small, like 12 to 15 percent reduction in tenofovir, tenofovir levels in rectal tissue, um, but no change in blood. And then there been, there's another study that shows some uh, change in blood. So these studies, like the one that was reported last year, had a total of 12 participants. So we really need better data, and those studies are going on now. So I would encourage this woman that we think it from the data we have, um, which are unfortunately limited, it uh, looks like it works, um, and then spend some more time trying to decide whether or not for her 211 or daily prep would be a better choice. And that should be a, a discussion I think we have with all our patients. So no more cases, just to end and talk about the future of prep. And I think that really, Daily oral prep um, is very analogous to the uh, daily birth control pills. And we've learned a lot from contraception that we need choice, we need longer formulations, longer acting formulations, as well as different topical and systemic for formulations. So there's a lot of work going on in this space. Just want you to be aware of it. And uh, we'll touch on all these. There's ring formulations that could be used once a month, potentially every three months. Um, currently focused on depivirine ring, but there's also work on the tenofovir ring. There's cabotegavir, which would be injectable every two months. And with the goal that maybe we can get to an implant, as well as there might be a role for um, more on-demand approaches like rectal douches or inserts. And then broadly neutralizing antibodies are another area where there's a lot of interest. And in the end, hopefully we can um, offer women ways to prevent both pregnancy and HIV. So the depivirine ring study was, there were two studies actually that were done in uh, southern Africa where women put in this ring uh, once a month. It's shown in the picture there. They found it to be discreet and well-tolerated. It slowly um, releases depivirine, which is an NNRTI. The efficacy point estimate was about 30% in the two phase three trials, which the European regulators are reviewing that now, and we're waiting for their decision. However, two open-label studies have shown greater adherence and uh, suggest maybe up to 50% risk reduction, so, so stay tuned. And it appears like in this, just like with oral prep, that adherence was lower in women who are less than 25. So we still need to have products that really help younger women protect themselves. 
injectable cavitator is something that is of great interest because it would have the advantage that it could be dosed every two months. It could be dosed with injectable hormonal contraception. However, the question is this issue of a long tail, and I think this came up um, earlier in uh, Dr. Dar's talk, that it can be the tail is up over a year in women. And so I think what that raises, especially when you have to come back for visits, and we know from contraception that it's hard to get women on injectable contraception to come in right on schedule, is it, how big is your zone of resistance risk? It could be highly effective, but there will be real practical considerations on how we actually use this. <clears throat> so there are two efficacy trials that are pretty far along, um, looking at this as a single agent for injectable PrEP in MSM in the Americas and in young African women, um, and they're comparing it to oral Truvada. So stay tuned, we should have answers um, for this in the next couple of years. There's a lot of interest in implantable devices, and the um, idea would be this, you would have less of an issue with the tail because you could remove the implant if the woman decided she was no longer uh, needing this. This also could be an option for um, men, it doesn't have to be just women. There's a potential that you could use implants, not just for ARV-based prevention, but also for hormonal contraception. And the drugs that are being looked at in a variety of different implant formulations are TAV, uh, cavitegravir, and EFDA, the Merck drug that um, uh, Dr. Dara talked about. And then broadly, neutralizing antibodies is an area of great interest because we're still potentially pretty far off from having a traditional HIV vaccine. So the idea here would be <clears throat> that this would be passive immunotherapy, taking humanized, um, broadly neutralizing antibodies that people, a small proportion of people develop after natural infection. And the idea would be that, the goal would be that you would do a combination of these, just like with treatment, that you probably need more than one target. There is a trial that is fully enrolled and should have results in the next uh, year or so called the AMP trial that looked at infused um, single antibody, which was really a proof of concept trial to say, does an antibody work at what dose? But I think the field is moving towards the idea that we have to do combination antibodies and ideally for a real product, they should be dosed sub-Q. So stay tuned, there will be a lot happening in this space. And then at the other end of the spectrum, um, there's an interest in getting products that could be used with sexual practices, and many men use douches, so could they use a tenofovir douche um, before sex? And there's also work on either fast-dissolving inserts with TAP and albutegravir, or rifocin, either as an insert or as a film. So these are all in phase one studies, and I think one of the challenges with HIV prevention is if cavitegravir shows efficacy, it's going to be harder and harder to do um, placebo-controlled trials. So how many of these things can really get into advanced efficacy trials remains to be seen. But just to end and say that PrEP can't be one-size-fits-all, just like I think the contraception analogy is relevant here, that pills are not for everyone that there are new products that are coming along, and if you're in cities where these trials are going on, I encourage you to refer for enrollment. And I think that we've learned from contraception that choice is going to be important, that people's needs uh, vary over time, 
And then if we're going to get high impact, we're going to have to have highly efficacious products with choice that people actually want to use. And just to end on where are we with PrEP right now, I think that we estimate that there's somewhere around a quarter of a million people on PrEP worldwide. UNAIDS was um, trying to get a target of uh, at least uh, two million by 2020. We're far from that. So I think that while we try to find new products, I really encourage people to, um, to try to offer oral PrEP, make it as simple as possible, and try to find uh, delivery approaches that work for people's lives. And I think in the process, we'll learn things that'll um, help us implement these longer formulation products. I think the last thing is just to thank some of my colleagues, and then we'll have a question and answer. So we have a few minutes for questions from the audience before we finish with the best talk of the day. And so let's see. There have been studies using signal to cut off with the fourth generation HIV test. Um, to determine the likelihood of false positive, as you heard in the discussion today. Is it based on the laboratory machines analyzing the sample? Dr. Dar mentioned, but what is that cutoff that you look for? So it is a cutoff of 10, and it's important for people to realize that um, the P24 antigen is a little less specific than the P24 antibody. So the most of the cases are not antibody, but the antigen that are picked up by the fourth generation test. And the cutoff, signal to cutoff ratio is I can't entirely read the handwriting here, but it's another question about fourth generation testing, uh, antibody positive, but um, confirmatory test with viral load comes back negative. What do you do in that situation? So I would continue to prep because okay. really I would rely on the. the do you do the any more t repeating of the test? So I would repeat it once if they had ongoing okay um, would you consider or is there any evidence to test for therapeutic drug levels of FTC TDF in patients with GI absorption absorption issues or history of gastric bypass or some other barometric this surgery data-free zone so I, I don't <laughs> think um, I don't think there's any data to guide that but I would probably not do it um, other countries outside of the U.S. are using tenofovir 3TC for PrEP at about a tenth the cost of PrEP in the U.S. If, these, if the costs are low enough, and might more at-risk patients take PrEP using that regimen? Any comments about that? Yeah, WHO had a panel of um, pharmacologists come and consult on the, the pharmacology of FTC and 3TC and determined that really, although there are no trials of uh, tenofovir 3TC, that it should be um, comparable. And so it is one of the uh, approved regimens, as well as tenofovir alone, um, although most people are using the co um, dual therapy. So I, I think it's a reasonable question, but I suspect that um, 
due to convenience, it's easier uh, to, to do a co-formulated um, pill here, but I, I think it's cost has to be a factor. Um, so this is a brief question. How effective is PrEP in intravenous drug abusers, so addicts? The, yeah, so there was one study done in Thailand um, by the CDC, <clears throat> and they found about a 48% uh, reduction in um, new HIV infections. There was, the rate of infections was pretty low in that study, um, and it's the only trial that's been done in injection drug users. But they also found the same relationship of adherence to efficacy. Um, so I think the data for what we have is that it, it does work, um, and it is, works better if you take it more frequently. Okay, this is a very, uh, sorting out the handwriting here a little bit too, but I think it says, reports indicate that chlamydia or GC infections increase vaginal deoxynucleotidase enzymes by one log or more, which may significantly lower tenofovir levels in PrEP. Is it the combination of STDs, M184V, foreskin biology, and dysbiosis that predict treatment failure? How do you sort all that out? Yeah. Well, in the studies, um, I don't think I showed you these data, but in the studies that enrolled women, there was no reduced reduction of um, there was no lower efficacy in women who had STIs. So the data don't support that biologically STIs reduce HIV. And I guess maybe just without going into it too much, we have studies right now in Africa where one out of three women have chlamydia and gonorrhea, and we're seeing very, very few infections, even with moderate PrEP adherence. So personally, I don't think it's a big concern. Okay, if there are no other questions, we'll thank Dr. Kellum and wonderful discussion.